0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. If you're new to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, welcome. This is a great place to start your Barbell Medicine journey, and you should check out some of the other podcasts we have in our library. A lot of cool information there. If you're a returning listener, welcome back. This week is episode 154. This is a question and answer session that Dr. Baraki and I did prior to the San Antonio seminar earlier this year. We recorded this in his house, Uh, Tom Campitelli, who works for us, was asking us questions from the internet. So you guys submitted questions via Instagram, I believe. He curated them, and uh, we kind of went to town. Dr. Michael Ray was also in the house. Leah Lutz uh, was in the background as well, so we Had the whole crew there, Uh, we were answering some questions. The audio did stop recording about halfway through, so that's why this is a short one. It's only about 25 minutes, but uh, nice little digestible uh, nuggets of information for your commute or uh, your daily walks or whatever you're doing. Uh, We talk about isolation versus compound exercises, programming, when to see your primary care doctor, and much, much more in this week's podcast. So that will be fun for you guys to check out. Before we hop into this week's podcast, just a few announcements. We still do have seminars coming up this year, live in-person seminars. We're gonna be at Alan Thrall's gym, uh, Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California, here in November. The Pain and Rehab team has their two-day seminar coming up in Gainesville, Florida, that is worth CEUs for physical therapists and chiropractors. So if you're interested in either or both of those, there are links to them in the description below. Also all the new apparel that we recently dropped is live on our website and we've restocked uh, some of the shirts that sold out. So if you're interested in repping barbell medicine, trying to get that fresh fit going for fall, That was a lot of alliteration. I'd like some kudos for that. There's links to that in the description below. And also we restocked our whey protein. That is available on our website with lightning fast shipping. Uh, Last announcement, we do have a new shoulder rehab template. If you have shoulder pain while training and are interested in, you know, squat, bench, deadlift, this is the template uh, for you to try to get you back on track. Uh, We also updated nearly all of our templates. So if you've previously purchased a template from us, you get lifetime access to the updates so you can download those with the receipt that you were sent with your template purchase. If you can't find that receipt or the link's not working, just email us support at barbellmedicine.com. We'll get you handled as soon as possible. We do have some new templates in the work as well. Uh, So we have like a super total template coming out. We've got a low fatigue, uh, kind of strength focused template coming out, um, and then a youth template. So we're working closely with Dr. Derek Miles on uh, kind of how to train youth athletes uh, in season and out of season. So that'll be fun, pair that with the ebook uh, to kind of answer all your questions there and provide additional resources for those who are interested. So enough about that. Let's hop into this week's podcast, episode 154. This is Dr. Austin Brocky and myself answering questions from the internet. Tom is going to re- uh, ask us questions from the internet and uh, we're gonna try to answer them right here on the Barbell Medicine YouTube channel. Tom, let's do this. So should you only do compound lifts or should you do some isolation work as well? I mean, I think this is entirely goal dependent. Um, If you are trying to maximize strength performance and we're defining strength as like 1RM maximal strength, low velocity strength, I can't really make a strong case for doing a lot of isolation work period. It doesn't matter what your biceps development, you know, ends up being, what your calf development ends up being. I can make some case for triceps development, but that's likely going to take course through exposure to more compound lifts. So whether it be a close grip bench press, board press, uh, dips, etc., all those other so- sorts of things. So if you're just talking pure strength performance, I don't know that isolation work really has, like, uh, is necessary outside of potentially um, some, uh, like, Injury risk reduction stuff If you wanted to put like Nordics in there Or like Copenhagen planks or something like that Which technically are like somewhat isolation exercises But they're not talking about that They're talking about biceps curls And triceps press downs And calf work or whatever But if you want to get If you want to be the most jacked version of yourself Then yeah, isolation work I think has a place And there's decent evidence suggesting That you're can, you going to get more hypertrophy Out of that particular muscle group's than from compound lifts. I'm thinking particularly about quads uh, when you're comparing squats to leg extension uh, and their impact on hypertrophy and hypertrophy surrogates. Same thing with uh, triceps muscle development compared to bench press versus just triceps press downs. Doesn't mean that bench press is bad, doesn't mean that squats are bad, just that if you're really just trying to get them to grow, particularly for the lowest amount of fatigue cost from training, then you can do a lot more work, a lot more volume with the isolation stuff than the compound stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I view this kind of as a spectrum. At one end, you have like the hyper-specificity folks who might say not just only compoundless, but like only competition movements. Sure, yeah, I wouldn't say and that. And at this point, I make a fairly strong <laughs> case against that, um, yep. that, that I would not suggest that sort of training. I guess the only exception would be somebody who has goals consistent with competition and they have very limited time to train in which case you're kind of accepting like my outcomes aren't going to be as great as they could be because you don't have enough time to don't train have enough, enough. yeah but those are the main lifts you have to be prepared to do those lifts so you can do those lifts in between you have a broader array of quote-unquote compound movements and you mm-hmm. can do any variety of those that's all good and then on top of that you have the level of even more variation where you start introducing more isolation work and and I agree with the idea that isolation movements can get you a lot more training in certain areas that an individual may prioritize for whatever reason with a lot less fatigue. I myself in the past year, I would say I've uh, actually increased how much of that Mm -hmm. kind of work, isolation or accessory type stuff that I've done. And I've found um, that areas that would historically have frequently flared up from like a tendinopathy standpoint, when I was doing uh, a high volume of um you know highly specific movements like a lot of low bar squatting all in a week or a lot of you know uh comp grip benching all in a week Sure. spreading that out making a little bit more varied and then and then layering in some uh isolation stuff like you mentioned some tricep stuff even some bicep stuff who knows maybe that has some effect around the elbow i don't know sure but i seem to be tolerating you know that particularly well and so in general i feel like of late i've been biasing People's training a little bit more into the more variation realm, not taking yep. them a ton away from comp lifts if their goal is competition and doing a ton of isolation stuff, but um, not definitely not dismissing that stuff because I think it can have a pretty good role for general development and then for task specific, like even if you're trying to get you know trying to compete, to shore areas up that may be a limitation for you or to build tissue capacity so that they can handle more regular training with less risk of pain and injury.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and also just, like, filling out shirts, that can be cool. There if you're was, into that. If you're into that. There was this one uh, guy on a, on a forum, the old forum that we were previously on, that <laughs> was, like, he saw that I was doing biceps curls, and, like, I would program biceps curls for people, and he was, like, why would you do that? And I was, like, well, one, I think most people, particularly if they're interested in strength conditioning, like, want to train their arms anyway, and let's do it in a systematic way, uh, you know, where we provide enough training to get a, res- a result, but also not so much that they're not unable to tolerate it and then they don't grow. They don't get any stronger or whatever. And he's like, do you think Mike T would do biceps curls? And I was like, yes. 100%. If he had more time, he would do all of the lifts. <laughs> and that's exactly what Mike said to me. He's like, if I had more train time, I would do everything. I would do more biceps. I'd do more triceps. I'd do more deltoid stuff. Like he, would, he would do it all. And the whole thing is like if you have unlimited time to train and unlimited time to train your capacity to get so high, you can do it all. But the real problem is when people hear this, they're like, oh, so the barbell medicine guys say go do the, all this isolation work. And it's like not so fast. Start with a low amount of volume, work up over time because you don't grow from necessarily doing more volume, you're gonna grow from being able to tolerate the volume that you're exposed to and not and not just be treading water or trying to keep pace. The idea is like, oh, I can deal with this volume, I can deal with this training, and then you can actually grow from that rather than just overloading yourself all at once. The question is, can you tear your meniscus from squatting? Yeah, Maybe. yeah. you can tear your <laughs> meniscus doing anything. You could be on the toilet, not actively moving. <laughs> you could be rising from the toilet, getting down onto the toilet couch, you could be walking. Um, yeah, you could be doing any of that stuff uh, and, and tear your meniscus um, or be symptomatic from a previously torn meniscus is the other thing, right? So you'd actually have to get a imaging directly before a singular rep of the lift and then have some sort of indication that you need to get imaging directly afterwards and show a you know, bona fide image, uh, like tear it on image, And you'd be like, wow, that's just when it happened. And it can't be from the walk out or the (laughs) walk-in. So you'd have to have people take the weight from you, right? So uh, could it happen? Sure. Um, But I guess the the real question is probably baked in here is like, should you avoid squatting if you have a torn meniscus? Or should you avoid squatting? and, And should you avoid squatting if you don't want to tear your meniscus? And both of those things, I would say, you should probably squat. Or some sort of lower extremity compound exercise that targets all the musculature of the lower extremities, and you know gets you somewhat close to failure <laughs> multiple times per week. That'd be the overall like training. Yeah, training I think goal. it's uh,
1: exceptionally difficult to prove, you know, that it happens during a particular moment in time, as you said, and it's similarly difficult to prove that it is the sole driver of your pain symptoms. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's Uh, that's highly unlikely. And so I just think that this is something that should not be of concern to most people um, because so many people, as we've talked about in other contexts, have um, these kind of findings. If we go looking for them, take pictures of people's knees, we can find evidence of a torn meniscus. um, And obviously the word torn kind of spooks people and it makes them think that it is you know, uh, uh, damaged and needs to be fixed or that it is a, a, a major problem. But it's super common. It's really essentially impossible to know when it happens and it's really difficult to say how closely related it is to your knee pain. And I would say overarching all of this is thinking about, okay, whether it is due to that or not due to that, whether I have one or I don't have one, if my knee hurts, what do I do about it? And the presence or absence of that in most situations does not really impact um, how we would recommend you approach your knee pain. And that has a lot to do with uh, some of the other content we've we've put out on managing pain in training. So,
0: yep. wouldn't sweat it. Yep, I do not think that squatting increases your risk of tearing a meniscus. I do not think that squatting increases your risk of having pain from a previously torn meniscus. In fact, I'd argue for the opposite relationship. If you start the correct loading, tempo, range of motion, et cetera, work somebody through that, you can actually reduce their symptomology and sensitivity to the squat and then i don't know that i would avoid squatting for any particular reason unless you really just do not want to squat and that's the you, you know, preventing you from doing any sort of resistance training in which case Let's pick something else. you could leg press yeah how regularly should a 36 year old health healthy male see their physician uh this is a great question so with uh that recent paper that we shared um about like just the routine health check. I think it was in JAMA last month in yeah. June, June or July, twenty twenty one. Yeah, we'll link that in the description below so you guys can check that out. Uh, to answer your question, I think if somebody has no medical history, personal medical history, and their family medical history is benign as far as they know, meaning that nobody had like a heart attack or you know dropped dead from a cardiovascular problem early on in life, or you know uh, colon cancer that was discovered early on. You you can't, it's gonna be difficult to make an evidence-based case for you should see a doctor yearly for a checkup. It's it's gonna be, there are no like routine labs that you need to draw on a yearly basis to like uh, maintain (laughs) health or even screen effectively for uh, health. The the current screening tool that we use, the uh, AHQ. (laughs) AHRQ. Yeah, AHRQ effectively uses your demographic data, and uh, some other lifestyle data to like, kind of spell out, like, here's, here are the recommend- recommended screening. And most of those for a 36-year-old male are going to be for STIs, sexually transmitted infections. Um, and in, if you have no family history of anything else, that's, you know.
1: Yeah, I think the, the most uh, frequent recommendation would be an annual blood pressure check, mm-hmm. um, which, again, that can be checked in a variety of settings. Yeah. Um, by that age, by 36, most people should have had, the recommendation would be that you have had a blood lipid or a blood cholesterol panel checked. And if you had that checked and it was normal, then you are okay to recheck it in five years from that point. At least that's also the guideline there. And then yes, the rest has to do with lifestyle behaviors, family history, particularly like of early colon cancer, early, early heart disease, things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, but outside of those things, I would like to reiterate very clearly what you said that there are no routine blood tests that need to be checked on an annual basis for people in that demographic who are healthy, who do not have existing medical problems. That includes a complete blood count. That includes a complete metabolic panel. That includes <laughs> yep. a thyroid stimulating hormone. That includes a vitamin D. That includes Dude. all the things that I very frequently get asked to, to check on folks. Um, not, I mean, at all, inclu- and, and definitely if, I ch- uh, if it's being requested to be checked yearly, there is no reason... Um, to check those things at all in individuals in that demographic who are healthy, no prior medical history, no symptoms, um, uh, does not need to be done. So principally has to do with blood pressure screening annually, in yeah. some fashion, again, that doesn't even have to be with a physician. Yep. Um, substance use disorders, things like alcohol use, things like that, other high risk lifestyle behaviors, and then certain family history aspects. Even the even the guideline or even the recommendation for like depression screening is yeah. quite controversial yeah. because of risks of overdiagnosis, overtreatment over treatment in that situation too. Yeah. So yeah, you probably don't need to see somebody as frequently as uh, you might think.
0: Yeah, I think there's a weight screening in there too. Yeah, yeah, for like uh, dietary intervention yeah. counseling. But so Leonard pops is uh you know every year and i just got my yearly yearly what (laughs) he's like what do you mean you know my yearly uh my labs yeah And i was like why (laughs) and he's like you know the the cbc's i'm like i know what it is i'm like why though and he's like my doctor my doctor wanted me to do it so your doctor may have a different view on this than we do um and that's fine Uh, We would refer you to the paper linked in the description below, and we're just reporting the facts here. Interpret them as you will. So the question is, I haven't hit a PR in a long time. What do? What do? Yeah. Yeah, question. Yeah. If you haven't hit a PR in a long time, what do? Uh, So without knowing more about this, like where somebody is in their training trajectory and career, I, I would it's really hard to hard to say like if somebody's been training for 15 years and they haven't hit a PR in 2 years I'm less inclined to like raise you know ring a ring the alarm bell and be like we got to do something and find the answer it's like you know sometimes that happens you can get it be on an injury streak you could have a you know other life stuff going on that's detracting you from training productively and you might not even be aware of that just like life and environmental stress that can all happen um, but if somebody's like, "Yeah, I've been training with weights for six months," and I, you know, and then after that haven't had not hit a PR for two and a half years, I'm like, "One, what did the first six months look like?" Yeah. <laughs> and then like, you know, what's going on now? Like, I'd be curious about injury history and programming and stuff. So um, if somebody hasn't been PRing at some sort of like regular interval, or at least building momentum towards trying. Uh, you know, almost setting PRs. You just really want to look at the programming. As far as uh, the first thing I'm looking at is it appropriate for the goals that they're trying to uh, achieve. So if they if someone's primarily strength minded, you know, are they training in rep ranges and intensity ranges that like promote maximal strength development? If no, like okay, well that's let's change that. Are they using exercises that they're testing their strength in? Like you know, th- again, these are very rudimentary sort of concepts, but people just picking programs. They're like, oh, I'm on a bodybuilding program and my squat didn't go up. It's like... Yeah, we okay. need to line
1: those things up. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. okay. Well, <laughs> not, not necessarily surprised. Um, if that is seems to be in line, then the next thing I'm going to is the dose. And I think most people would assume that we're saying, oh, you're just not training enough. You need to do more. But it could be the opposite, meaning that you're training uh, a lot right now and you're able to kind of tolerate it Uh, meaning that you're, you know, you can maintain performance week to week or it kind of goes down a little bit and it kind of stays down, but you're injured relatively frequently. You know, every third or fourth week, some tweak comes up and like derails your progress. To me, that sort of indicates, you know what, maybe the dose is like a little too high right now for what you can tolerate. And instead of you being able to, uh, again, tolerate, adapt, and then thrive on that training volume, it's actually kind of just keeping you down. You're just trying to tread water and not necessarily making it. And so you can adjust it either way. Or the training volume at that given intensity level. I mean, there, you can't talk with one, talk about one without talking about the other. So in general, the way I look at this is, is the training appropriate to your goal? And it, are you doing too much or not enough of it? And if all of those things check out, then I'm starting to look at like, what is, what are your expectations going into a training session? How are you trying to progressively load yourself? Um, I had a guy uh, who was running one of our templates. He's like, my squat hasn't gone up. And I'm like, okay, well, what are you squatting, you know? And uh, I don't remember the exact weight. I think the low 200 somewhere. He's like, yeah, I just kept doing the same weight. And I was like, but, and why, though? He's like, well, the calculator said that my estimated 1RM was the same, and so I just kept loading the same for my last warm-up set and then my work sets. And I'm like, have you tried adding more weight, you know, like on days that – your warm-up set, for example, didn't feel quite as heavy. He's like, well, the calculator, though, it said to just add this. And, I, you know, I, I can understand that. But at the same time, it's like if on days that you're feeling very strong, I think you need to take advantage of that. That's one of the go- joys of, or one of the benefits of RPE. On days that you're not feeling so great, you don't, you know, you're still trying adjust to adjust accordingly. Yeah, you're still, you're trying, still trying to get the that, right yeah. dose yeah. of training stimulus. So um, those, that's kind of how I would look at it. Uh, anything else you want to put in there?
1: Yeah. The, the, the other part of this is that an individual going through this process may feel overwhelmed with all of those variables and like deciding how yeah. do I modify these things. And sure. It may you know, maybe part of the reason why they pursued a kind of a stock program is because they're like, I can't figure all this stuff out for myself. In which case the expectation that you can then figure out what steps to take next with it may also be unreasonable and you may need to get some some guidance, for example. The coaching, yeah. Um, it's like pursuing, pursuing a coaching relationship, somebody you trust who can help walk you through the process because particularly somebody who's experienced because they've probably been through this before too. I mean, uh, coaches have PR droughts as uh, both, of, both of us have had at some point in our training careers. That's happened. And figuring out how to get through, get around that process can be pretty valuable experience to then impart onto somebody else. If coaching is not really an option for you um, for whatever reason, be it financial or, or, or another uh, reason, and you're not sure what to do with your um, particular existing programming, then I think the last choice is just pick any other program and see if you respond to it. Sure, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. Like, that's like if, if I have no access to resources and I don't know what to do based on the variables that have been explained to me, then just try something else. Yep. Even if it's a temporary, even if it's temporarily something that is not in line perfectly with your goals, take, Mm -hmm. you know, do something like another style of training, do other exercise, do other stuff. Maybe you'll, you know, psychologically, it'll be a reset for you and then come back to what you enjoy doing and maybe you'll blow up again. You know, that's happened to various points in our training careers too.
0: Do you think that by hiring a coach that you cut off the learning curve (laughs) or that you make the learning curve steeper? Uh, Yeah. Just say, all right, if you're watching this on YouTube, just comment below. Like, if you increase the rate at which someone is learning a skill, is it cutting off the learning curve or you're making the learning curve steeper? I want to know below. I don't want to know. Leah chuckles. I will not look at the YouTube comments. All right. What level of activity is no longer considered sedentary? Uh, In the research, this is meeting the aerobic guidelines. Uh, So, the 150 to 300 minutes of moderate. Uh, intensity aerobic training uh, or 75 to 150 minutes of vigorous intensity aerobic training or some combination of the two which is what 500 to 1,000 minutes per met week minutes per week, met minutes per week. Um, when they did this with just walking the sedentary cut point was at like 6,000 steps per day so the average adult American just in their day to day life if they wear a pedometer 24 hours a day, takes between 6,000, 7,000 steps. Some uh, individuals with certain medical conditions take less, although some individuals with certain medical conditions take more, like diabetics on average, take more steps than the uh, the average. COPD patients take less steps. So it really depends on this, like who you're asking and why you're asking them. Because if you ask researchers, they're gonna come up with a very specific answer here. If you ask me, I'm just gonna say the physical activity guidelines for adults, which includes those aerobic training goals and also twice weekly resistance training, and if you're not meeting all of those, you have a physical uh, inactivity or physical activity level that is insufficient. Doesn't mean you're like completely sedentary, but it's just yeah. insufficient physical activity. I'll come at this slightly differently. Oh, good.
1: <laughs> the reason why researchers have a cutoff is for the purposes of research. Sure. because you have to so that you can dichotomize groups, meaning you can split people into groups and compare them. Um, And the guidelines are what they are for reasons that we've discussed in some of our other content. If I were an individual like the person asking, who I'm presuming is asking this question, I would really try to take my focus away from the label sedentary, right? Because the question was like, at what level am I no longer considered sedentary? Like at what level can I like rip this label off that says boom, like I've graduated? And, and so that kind of, because it generates like this false dichotomy of like, I'm sedentary or I'm not sedentary. Whereas instead, the reality of it is it's a giant spectrum. Yeah, just physical and activity. It's, yeah. Not only is it a spectrum of activity, but there's a spectrum of associated risk with that. Mm-hmm. And so if it's a curvy linear relationship, if it's just a curve of risk related to your level of activity, and we say, where are we going to put the cutoff for when you're sedentary? Sure. Not, it's like, you know, just, yeah, we'll put it here. And it is not meaningful whether you're on just this side of the curve or on just this side of the curve. Your risk is relatively similar. So I'd I'd kind of view it more as this is just a spectrum of activity. If I'm very low relative to the guidelines, then I can recognize I'm a little bit higher risk or potentially at a lot higher risk. And the further I get into and towards the higher end, say, of those guidelines, I'm bringing my risk down. So it's this continuous relationship, not a split dichotomous one the label is less useful when you're you know, talking about people or like telling them like you are a sedentary person or something like that. Sure, Instead yeah. it's just a spectrum of activity and a spectrum of risk.
0: Yeah, I think that physical, the risk of physical inactivity does go up precipitously once you get below yeah. the, the minimums. Um, but whereas, we also know that your risk goes down fairly
1: continuously up to very high levels correct. of activity. Correct, yes, yes. So, yeah.
0: Do I prefer high bar or low bar squats? Uh, in competition, I prefer low bar because I can, I personally can lift a little more weight in training though. I would prefer the high bar squat. And if I didn't have any competitions coming up, I would probably just do high bar squats. All right. That's a wrap on this week's podcast, episode 154. Thank you so much for listening before you go please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we can keep bringing you the latest nuance in health and fitness. We'll see you here next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast. See ya.